0: We now bring you the Tabernacle Pulpit podcast featuring the late Dr. Harold B. Seitler, founding pastor of Tabernacle Baptist Church and Ministries in Greenville, South Carolina. And now today's edition of the Tabernacle Pulpit podcast. I suppose most of you in the building tonight are familiar with 1 John chapter number two. Uh, It's a tremendous chapter. The thing that strikes me in the chapter is twofold. First, my text in verses 15, 16, and 17. Then second, uh, the the fact that John addresses himself uh, to all types of people that are in God's family uh, in the verses preceding the words of my text. If you look back at verse number uh, 12, for example, I write unto you little children because your sins are forgiven you for his name's sake. And then you note again in verse number 13, I write unto you, fathers, because you know, have known him that is from the beginning. And then again, I write unto you, young men, because you have overcome the wicked one. Then again, I write unto you, little children, because you have known the father. And then in verse 14, I write unto you, fathers, because you have known him that is from the beginning. And then again in verse 14, I write unto you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of God abideth in you, and you have overcome, ye have overcome the wicked one. Now, I've always, ever since I've been able to study the Bible, I've been uh, captured by uh, these, this repetition. I write unto you, little children. I write unto you, young men. I write unto you, fathers. And the things that John says in each one of these instances has always uh, interest me a great deal. In fact, that's a study and a message within itself. And I'll not get into that tonight because I want to deal rather with verses 15, 16, and 17 But I wanted to call that to your mind. Uh, If I learn nothing more from verses 12 through 14 than the fact that God has an exhortation, a word of exhortation for every group within the family, I learn that to say the least. The Bible speaks to the young folk, the children. The Bible speaks to young men. The Bible speaks to the elders, to the fathers. And you never hear a gospel message except somewhere in that message, there's something that can be applied to all classes and all categories. Now that's so in any kind of a gospel message uh, that I may deliver from this pulpit. Sometimes uh, we bring in people, bring in preachers, or even in my own experience, and they say, well, the children don't get anything from that sermon. Don't you let nobody kid you about that. The Bible speaks to all groups of people, young and children and elders as well. The Bible is relevant. That's one way of saying the Bible is relevant. And in this day, when the Bible is scuffed at and mocked at and classified as irrelevant, then I think we ought to be reminded of fresh and you that this book has a message for every person that'll read its content or hear it expounded or proclaim from the pulpit. The Bible speaks. The Bible is up to date. The Bible has a message. Now the problem is not with the Bible nor is the problem with the preacher that may be delivering God's word but the problem is with the hearer. There are some who have ears to hear and don't hear. There are some who hear but don't apply. There are some who listen but they say I wonder who the preacher is talking to and I wonder who he's talking about. And they don't hear. They have ears to hear, but they don't hear. They have hearts to feel, but they don't feel. And they're dead. They're dead to God, dead to themselves, and thus, and consequently the Bible doesn't speak. But if you have ears to hear, then the Bible has a message for everybody under the sound of my voice at this moment. And you know that well enough, don't you? I don't have to labor at that point, because you know it. You've heard it. I know it. I've sat on the pews many times where you now sit. And I've heard a gospel preacher stand and proclaim the Bible. And I know how the scriptures speak to me. And if the scriptures speak to me, then I'm reasonable to conclude that the scriptures also speak to every other person who may hear the honest proclamation of God's holy and verbal inspired word. Now, let's look at verse number 15, 16, and 17 tonight as a text and as a, a unit. Love not the world. Now remember... That in the verses preceding, John has been delivering an exhortation to children and to young men and to fathers. To all groups, all ages, and all needs in the body of Christ. And now he makes an announcement, a proclamation to all children, young men, and fathers alike. And that proclamation is, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now let's stop at that uh, a particular point. There's a period, there's two sentences in verse 15, and so we have a right to stop after having read the first sentence in verse 15. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world, period. Now there's no exceptions to that. There's no qualifications involved. It's simply a blanket statement and a dogmatic proclamation from the father to children. To young men and to fathers and older men as well. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now what does that mean? What's John saying? Now I don't think John is saying that I'm not to love the, uh, uh, the atmosphere and the uh, beautiful scenes. And the uh, uh, majestic ocean and the starry heavens. And that I'm not to enjoy the beauty of a tree and the majesty of life. I, I think I am to enjoy that. I think one of the most fascinating experiences I've ever enjoyed in my life is standing by the seashore. Some of you might have never seen uh, the ocean or the seas. You've missed something real wonderful. When you stand by the, the seashores and look out at that vast expanse of water, as far as you can see the horizon, nothing but water. And the thing that mystifies me is that that water never is still for a moment, nor is it level. It rises out over the horizon. You can see the bend of it. And, and you, you see the hand of God and the handiwork of the Almighty when you stand and look at the waters. Now, I don't think it's wrong for us to admire that or to enjoy that. I think you'd be rather a peculiar person if you didn't. If you stood on the seashore and, and felt nothing, I'd think rather strange about you. How could you help but see and feel God when you looked at the majestic sea? The same thing is so with the starry canopy above our our heads. I admire looking at the stars. I admire the vast expanse of space above me. I love to look at the moon. Sometimes I look at that moon, step out of my automobile at nighttime, and the moon is shining brightly. And I take a look at that moon before I go into the shelter of my house. And I marvel at that lesser light that God has draped out in its heaven. And I, I look at it with admiration I don't think there's anything wrong necessarily at admiring the moon or the stars. I, I look at trees. I, there's something about a tree that I love. I love trees. And, and, the, uh, and sometimes trees interest me. They're, they're beautiful, beautiful. I, I've found myself standing and just looking at a tree, and especially uh, in the summertime when it's loaded down with its fruit or loaded down with its green foliage to stand by and look at the bark of that tree and the limbs of that tree and the multitude of leaves that hang upon the branches of that tree interest me i admire it i love it i uh, any artist that's ever written or drawn many pictures will soon uh, draw a picture of a tree any photographer that uses a camera will soon make a picture of a tree and any man that has any sense of appreciation will soon admire a majestic tree. There's something about it that catches my attention. Now, there's nothing wrong with me loving a tree. I love the things of the world in that sense. Not a thing in the world wrong with that, you see. Now, things that God, God's made and put in this world for your aid and for your inspiration and for the very maintenance of life. It's not wrong to love that or admire that. Not wrong at all. And you'd be a foolish person to think it would be. For a man to see, uh, to fail to see the glory of God in anything would be uh, a drab life, a dead life, a dismal life indeed. Love not the world. It doesn't mean that. It doesn't mean that, I'm sure. Neither the things that are in the world. And it doesn't mean that I'm not to admire the handiwork of the Almighty. You remember the psalmist. And he wrote it down in the pages of God's word. Said the heavens show the glory of God. Day unto the other speech. And night unto night showeth God's knowledge. And demonstrating God's hand to work the heavens. The psalmist wrote that. And that's inspired scripture in the pages of God's word. So I'm to love the world as far as that is concerned. Admire the world as far as that's concerned. No, that isn't what John is talking about at all. And the next verse clarifies it for sure. If there's any doubt in your mind, when I get to verse 16, you'll see clearly that it could not be uh, the world as far as the material world round about me is concerned. Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. Now, the next sentence in that verse says, if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now that too is a solemn pronouncement. And that too is a complete thought. There's a period at the end of that sentence as well. Now, if God meant that I'm not to love the trees and the stars and the moon and the oceans and the mountains. And if I love those things, therefore the love of God is not in my heart. Then I better find out for sure just what God does mean. When he commands not to love the world, neither the things that are in the world. It's very essential that I know exactly what God's talking about. Because when a man loves the world, the world in the sense that God speaks in that verse, then the love of God's not in that man. Now what is the world that I'm not to love? And if I do love, then the love of the Father is not in me. Now you listen to me for the next minute or two, will you? I don't know, but that there's uh, there's a need in the heart of every person in this building. For what I'm about to say from these verses as God leads my soul you push the world out of your mind now you forget about that job for a moment and you forget about things around about you and you look at that text of scripture and then you think in your own soul and apply it to your own heart love not the world neither the things that are in the world if any man love the world the love of the father is not in that man now you find a man matters not who he may be he may be religious he may be a church member He may be a mighty man, but if he loves the world, the love of God's not in that man. Nor can the love of God be in that man. God will not save him. Now what is the world? The next verse clarifies it for time and eternity. In verse 16, for all that is in the world. And the three things that are enumerated in verse 16 are the three things that I'm not to love. And become occupied with and over dearly concerned with love not the world neither things in the world for all that's in the world now what is all in the world that you and I that are God's little children and God's young men and God's fathers what is it that I'm not to love and what is it if I do love it's an indication that the love of God is not in my soul what is it now three in number first of all the lust of the flesh Second, the lust of the eye. And third, the pride of life. Now these three things is not of the Father, but is of the world. These three, not of God, but is of the world. Now let's examine those for a moment and see just how we stand in relation to the three things that are forbidden. Three things that I'm commanded not to love. And if I do love, then the love of God is not in my soul and cannot be first of all I'm not to love the lust of the flesh that's the world the lust of the flesh is the world not the mountains nor the sea nor the stars nor the moon but the lust of the flesh is the world now you say "Well, brother Harold everybody is in the flesh that's right we tabernacle in a fleshly body but not everybody in a spiritual sense is in the flesh some people are in the spirit Now a man that's born of the Spirit of God is renewed and he's a spiritual creature. But a man that's unsaved and without God is a fleshly creature. And he's occupied by flesh and by the things of the flesh and therefore not a saved man. Now I'm not to love the things of the flesh, the lust of this flesh. Now this body of mine is a fleshly body and I well know it. And the devil has a many a thing in the world and of the world that he can attack me through and tempt me through. That is my flesh through the things that uh, that appeal to the lust of my flesh. And the devil works in season and out of season to allure and to attract and to attempt and to tempt the last one of us through the lust of the flesh. And that flesh of yours, if left unrestrained and unregulated and uninstructed will follow the path of least resistance and will soon find itself delighting for and delighting in and clamoring for the things of the flesh, the lust of the flesh. Now need I go further to catalog and to classify the things that would be included in the lust of the flesh? I think the lust of the flesh would include uh, uh, fornication, I think the lust of the flesh would include adultery and i'm not to love those things now those things may be a temptation and the devil may use them to bring them uh, to me as a temptation but if the love of god is in my soul then i can't love the lust of the flesh because the lust of the flesh is of the world and it's forbidden to me and you that are spiritual not fleshly but spiritual It's forbidden. I'm not to love the lust of the flesh. Now it's one thing to be tempted through the lust of the flesh. But it's another thing to love the lust of the flesh. And the lust of the flesh is the world. You couldn't deny that because that's what the verse clearly says. It's one thing to be tempted by and through the lust of the flesh. But it's another thing to love it. And to encourage it. And to have license in it. And to give way to it. I don't think it'd be possible for, uh, for a normal person to live in this world without sometimes along the way becoming tempted through the lust of the flesh. I suspect all of us sometimes or other have been tempted in that avenue, the lust of the flesh. Satisfying the flesh. And there are more ways to satisfy the flesh than sexuality. There are other ways. In the case of our Lord, in Matthew chapter number 4, it was not sexuality but hunger. The devil said, if thou be the Son of God, turn this stone into bread and satisfy your hunger. Forty days he'd been without bread. And he had enough power to speak. And the whole hillside, every stone, would have turned into a loaf of bread. But he said, get thee hence, Satan, it's written, the man shall not live by bread alone. And the lust of the flesh, in his case, in that temptation was the lust for physical satisfaction through hunger and through a food and through appetite and so on but whatever the lust of the flesh may be in the most cases i think in this generation the lust of the flesh would include sexuality the average temptation would come in that particular channel now you may be tempted and not sin all of you have had that experience temptation through the lust of the flesh
1: but it's only when you encourage
0: that temptation And give liberty to that temptation and indulge in that temptation and encourage that temptation or yield to that temptation that you've committed a sin. Now, if you love the things of the flesh to the degree that you encourage it and excite it and give liberty to it and participate in it and yield to it, then you've committed sin and you've loved the world and there's something wrong with you. The love of the Father is not in you. Now, I'm saying, I'm saying something real, real definite. And I think you could classify yourself. Uh, if, if a person under the sound of my voice, whether well, in this building or by the radio, is a lust fiend, and you just can't walk right, and don't walk right, and have no desire to walk right, and don't plan to live right, now, don't claim to be a Christian. You're not a Christian. Don't claim to have been born again. You've deceived yourself, and the truth's not in you you're not born again now whether you're a deacon or teacher or a preacher or whatever you may be if you if you yield to that temptation and and do it because you love it and you don't have enough grace on the inside to say no to that temptation then you don't have enough grace to have been saved Then you're lost love not the world neither the things that are in the world now what is in the world first the lust of the flesh and I'm not to love the lust of the flesh I may be tempted by it but i'm not to yield to it i may be tempted to it but i'm not to excite it i come in contact with it but i'm not to give license and liberty to it and by the grace of god i won't don't tempted i won't yield by god's grace and though you may be tempted you'll not yield if you have the grace of god abounding in your soul where sin abounded grace doth much more abound now don't come and argue with me that you don't have enough grace and don't come and tell me that the temptation was too great it wasn't too great for Joseph and Joseph walked into it face to face I mean he really walked into a situation and the average man would have yielded to that kind of a temptation I suppose but not Joseph Joseph fled, you know the story as well as I. Joseph fled and kept himself from that wicked temptation that he was affronted with face to face. Now, not in every case have men always responded like, like Joseph. David didn't respond that way. And a lot of other men have not responded that way. But there's one thing about David. David responded in the wrong fashion when he committed the sin, but he responded in the right fashion when he came to realize that he'd sinned. And that's the difference and you don't find David going back and repeating that thing over and over again no no he sinned one time and he admitted it Psalms 51 he cried to God forgive me and purge me but brother David didn't fall the second time into that not by any means and he didn't love the flesh he didn't he yielded to the flesh and committed to sin but he didn't love that thing had he loved it then his life would have been characterized with a repetition of that kind of conduct. Over and over and over again. Love not the world. Now what is in the world preacher? What is the world? Not the mountains. Not the trees. nor the stars. nor the sun. nor the ocean. But the lust of the flesh. That's the world. Lust of the flesh. Love not the world. Then I want you to note second. In verse number 16 it tells me. That the world is the lust of the eyes. That's the world lust of the eyes. Now the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes are, are very close akin. They're different, but they're close akin. And both can lead to terrible sin and violation of the law of God and transgression of the law of God if unrestrained. Both are wrong and deadly as they a, as a, uh, allure men astray and allure men away from God. Now the world, first of all, is the lust of the flesh. Second, the world is the lust of the eye. Now, the lust of the eye is the uh, desire to see, desire to see, and desiring to see, then the desire to have. The lust of the eye is the off- offspring of selfishness and self-worship and self-esteem. What I see with my eyes, I won't. Now, the thing that you see with your eyes may be innocent, But if that seeing of that particular thing causes you to lust for it and selfishly seek to acquire whatever you may look upon, then that becomes a deadly sin. That becomes then the world that I'm to not love if I'm to be filled with the love of God. The lust of the eye. Now the lust of the eye could include a lot of things, could involve a lot of things. I think sometimes, basically, primarily in our generation, the lust of the eye, like the lust of the flesh, could be applied to sexuality. I think because of the lust of the eye, we have the floodgates of pornography turned loose throughout America. And sometimes, I think, uncensored and unrestrained from what I'm able to read and observe. Then I think the reason you have that is because of the lust of the eye. I think the reason you have the, uh, the Hollywood movies coming out, As uh, advertised and as I've heard, though I have not seen with my eyes, yet I've heard. I think the reason that you have that type of thing coming out is because of the lust of the eye. Men see it. And seeing it, men desire it. Lust for it. Selfishly want it for themselves. And that becomes the world deadly and sinful and wrong. I think also the printed page can be involved in that. Our uh, phrenography through pictures, our phrenography through printed letters, printed words, uh, can be used of the devil to entice men through their eyes to transgress and to get away from God. Now here's something that every one of us live with. Every day I live, I live with my eyes as well as with my body. I can't live without my body. My body is, uh, is prone to wonder. And through my body, Satan tempts me, but I have to live in my body. And I can't isolate myself. Some foolish persons have believed that if you can close the door and pull the shades and live inside, isolate yourself from everything in the world, then you can be a holy person. Now, you can't pull the shades to your mind. You can't pull the shades to your imaginations. You couldn't pull the curtains to your mind. No, you, uh, you can isolate yourself, but that won't do a great deal of good. The devil can still come through you, uh, to you with your imagination, with a thought, with your mind. Whether the door is closed, whether the curtains are pulled or not, you see. No, the fact is I'm in the world in a fleshly body, not a thing I can do about it. But I can regulate it. And I can rely upon God's grace to enable me to persevere to God's glory. And for 45 years I persevered by the grace of god now i'm not standing before you and tell you that i've never done wrong in all these 45 years that i've been saved but i am standing before you to tell you that i have persevered the trend of my life has been upward for 45 years not downward and the bit of my life has been in the center of god's will not away from god i've been running with god and toward god for 45 years and plan to keep on going that way i don't plan to go in the opposite direction God's grace has been sufficient for me. Now, if the grace of God is sufficient for me and I'm a normal man, then the grace of God is sufficient for every one of you in this building. Now, don't you come to me and whine on my shoulder and say, now, preacher, you just don't. Yes, I do know. And if God's grace can keep me, God's grace can keep you. Now, you have to learn to regulate and buffet and mortify and crucify your members which are upon the earth. Now, you excite sin and encourage sin and inflame sin, you're headed for trouble.
1: But when you regulate and resist
0: the devil and flee fornication, flee youthful lust, then the grace of God will give you perseverance and you can live the Christian life. Don't you tell me you can. You can live the Christian life. Now, I'm not talking about sinless perfection, but I'm talking about the Christian life. And don't tell me you can't do it. You can do it. Amen. Amen. And if you haven't got victory, don't blame the church. Don't blame your wife. Don't blame your neighbor. Don't blame your boss man. Blame yourself. If you're not shouting victory tonight, it's nobody's fault but your own. Victory is accessible and available. And if you don't enjoy victory, then look at the man in the mirror, and that's the man that's to be blamed for your lack of joy and lack of victory. Now, the lust of the flesh... Must be regulated. Lust of the eye, likewise, must be regulated. Now that's the world, the lust of the eye. I, as I said a moment ago, I live in my body. I can't live without it. I also live with my eyes. Why, I couldn't drive an automobile with my eyes closed. Nor could I preach a sermon. Why, I couldn't preach to you with my eyes closed. I've never been a type preacher that could preach to the ceiling. I have seen preachers that could preach to the ceiling. And they would look people in the face. But I look at people in the face when I preach to them. And I, I learn how my sermons going by looking at them in the face. And I also learn when to shut up by looking at them in the face. <laughs> when I see one or two of you give it that, I'd about as soon you pull a gun on me as to pull a watch on me. Then I know it's time to shut up, you see. So it's good to watch. I couldn't preach without my eyes. And I couldn't live without my eyes. And yet my eyes is an avenue by which the world gets at me and through which the devil tempts me. The lust of the eye is the world. Now things that I see, whatever that may be, whether it's, uh, it's a house or whether it's land or whether it's uh, property or whether it's uh, lusting for a woman or whether it's uh, any other kind of lust through the eye, then that's of the world. Brethren, that is of the world. Now don't you try to excuse it. That is of the world. And if any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in that man. Now you put her down. Now you may be tempted to lust through the eye, and you may see things that you clamor for and lust for, but if you're saved in God's grace, you'll buffet that you'll resist that and god will give you grace to overcome that and you'll press on for the lord and if you don't resist it but rather encourage it and yield to it it's a clear indication that the love of god's not in you now the lust of the flesh is of the world the lust of the eye is of the world now there's one other the pride of life the third thing in this world that John enumerates inspired of God is the pride of life. Now what is that, pride of life, pride of life? Uh, Through the lust of the flesh, we clamor for that which satisfies our flesh, our bodies. Through the lust of the eye, we desire that which we see. And through the pride of life, uh, we desire applause and recognition and prominence and prestige. And we're not willing to be the humble, uh, unapplauded servant, quietly, Moving about, serving God, pleasing God. But we want to climb the ladder. We want to be the chief bottle washer. We want to be the number one. And that's the pride of life. And that's an avenue that the devil gets at, many, many people in this world, and leads multitudes to commit sin through that one avenue, the pride of life. Now I don't think it's I don't think it's necessarily wrong for you to have pride regulated. Pride regulated. I don't think there's anything wrong for a man uh, seeing that his shoes have shined. Any objections? You say, well, I don't believe in the world. I'm not proud like you are and let your shoes go and shine. i question the wisdom of that. Or uh, Somebody said, well, I take no pride in myself. I'm not going to get a haircut, not going to fix up my hair. You there ladies that fix up your hair real nice, uh, you're to be commended for that. You're not to be criticized for that. You're to be commended for that. And I admire you for it. But here's the verse that, says, well, I don't love the flesh. And the pride of life means nothing to me. And therefore, they let their hair go. Now, that's not wisdom. That's not being smart at all. And that's not what the verse is talking about in the least, the pride of life. I think it's uh, nothing but normal for a man to want to be clean and presentable and uh, as attractive as he can to be. I think it's nothing but normal for a man to uh, keep his house clean or his, uh, his body clean. That's nothing but normal. A certain amount of pride along that line would be uh, uh, commendable. But the tragedy is that when men climb the ladder of prestige and prominence and power and in so doing trample under their feet somebody else in, in order to get to the top and they're so set on the pride of this life and the exultation and the applause of this world and the praise of this world that at any cost, compromise or not, They're going to get to the top. That's the world. And I'm not to love that. I'm not to love that. I get a little afraid when I hear people boasting. Boasting is the pride of life. Bragging is the pride of life. And many of us are bent in that direction. We have to watch ourselves. Baptist preachers have to watch themselves about boasting and about lying about this or the other. In giving reports, it might it sometimes when you give statistics to lie a little bit and to twist those statistics and, and make, a, make them appear to be what they actually aren't. And that's the pride of life. And it's wrong. Uh, I, I get a little worried when I hear somebody bragging about what they've done or what they can do or what they plan to do. And what, the proper way to say it would be the Lord willing I plan to do thus or the other. If God give me grace, I plan to do thus or the other. But when I hear folks say, well, I'm going to do that. That's in our plans. We're headed in that direction. We're going to be number one. This is, this, this is our, our, our work. We're going to do it. Oh, brother. I've heard that so many times. And then I've watched people. You know, I've lived long enough uh, to hear and to see the end sometimes. And I've seen it backfire. It doesn't work. That's wrong. That's of the world. And it's sinful for a preacher to have that attitude. It's sinful for an individual to have that attitude. The pride of life. The pride of life. Uh, You may know this illustration. You may have heard me tell it. But we had a young preacher here uh, in our church a few years ago. And I'm not calling the names. Uh, But he uh, was heard to say I didn't hear him. But it was reported to me firsthand. One of our young preachers, by the way, went out from our church But it was reported to me by reliable sources, and in fact, the person who reported to me heard him say it, that he was going to the top. He said, I'm going to the top. And I'm quoting the words that he said, I'm going to the top. He said, I'm going to pastor the large churches. And so he he started out to climb that ladder, he thought, that would carry him to the top. And so in order to, to get to his top, He had to sever some relationships. And the first relationship that he severed was mine. He uh, he couldn't go to the top uh, and be my friend and my companion, you see, because I'm an independent. And he was going to the top through the SBC. And so he had had to forsake his independent friends because he was going through another channel. And so he dropped me. Though we ordained him, he dropped me. And so he started out to climb to the top. And he went along three or four years, but I heard some repercussions of that. Uh, that ambition, that self-pride, that pride of life. And uh, in long, not long, a few years passed by, uh, passed by I heard some, some sad things about this young man climbing to the top. And then a few years ago, he just dropped out. And tonight, he's not pastoring anywhere, not preaching anywhere. Now, I'm, I, every time I think of that, boy, I get sad in my soul. He could have been used for God. He could have been in full-time Christian service tonight, either pastoring or in some other capacity, if he'd had one ounce of humility about him. But he just didn't have any humility. Now, I don't know. A person that is so proud until they trample under their feet, others on their, on their climbing to the top, I don't know whether they're right with God or not. If a man is so clamorous for that kind of recognition... He might have def- deceived himself about whether he's really in the grace of God or not. While on the other side of the ladder, and the other extreme, the good other extreme, uh, brother Everty Moore, God bless Everty. I never will forget when my wife and I went to Kentucky and I was there to preach in a three or four night meeting in a little church, a little small congregation of people there, and I, and uh, Libby was at home then and. And she and my wife went with me and we drove up and spent two or three days uh, with a boy that I wanted to God down at Pelham. And he was in the ministry, pastor in that little church in Kentucky. And I went to preach for him. While I was preaching there, a missionary came out of the hills and said, I want you to come visit our mission tomorrow. And I said, I'd be glad. And so I, well, the next day he came and got me and I drove my car as far up that valley as I could go to the end of the road. Then we walked the rest of the way and to the end of that valley set that little mission station that our church now owns and has owned for 12 years and uh, the missionary began to tell me how he's going to have to leave and the mission would be closed up and there was no other church in that area and he said to me do you think your church in Greenville could help us or could send somebody up here to pastor these people poor people living in shacks up and down the road and some of the most uh, Uh, humble homes I'd ever seen in my life or in that valley tonight and especially 12 years ago. And I came home from that meeting on Sunday morning. Some of you remember it. I told you what I'd seen and several of the brethren of this church came to me and said, Preacher, let's do something about that. And we sent several of our brethren up the next week to visit and see for themselves. And they came back like like Joshua and Caleb when they spied out the Promised Land. They came back and said, let's do something. And we bought that little mission And the Sunday I reported it to you, Iverda was seated over here on my right. And after I went to him and asked him to be our missionary there, he said, Preacher, the day you told that story, God spoke to me. He'd just finished Tennessee Temple. He said, God spoke to me, and he said, that's where you're going. He said, well, get ready. That's where you're going. I hadn't said a word to him. In fact, I hadn't even thought about him at that particular point. But God knew, you see, and God spoke to him and said, that's where you're going. And when I came to him several weeks later and said, Evert, would you be interested in going up there and keeping that mission station open and preaching to those humble people? He said, Preacher, I've been expecting you to ask me. God told me you would, and I'm ready to go. And that's been 12 years ago. And Evert has weathered a lot of storms, sick babies, and a lot of opposition, and a meager salary. The salary is not nearly as much as some of yours is. And living up there where the temperature in the wintertime sometimes gets down 25 below zero. And that little humble shack of a church up there, not as large as the choir tabernacle. And if he heard he's ever complained, if he heard he's ever murmured, if he's ever said, I'm, I, I've, I've done this as long as I'm going to, I'm going to climb the ladder of success. If he's ever had that thought, it's evaded me. But he's been humble in me doing the will of God. That's the other extreme. And that's the better, brother. <laughs> 10,000 times the better. The pride of life. You better watch that pride. The pride of face and the pride of race and the pride of grace. You better watch that. That pride could lead you down low. And when the old devil comes to you and says, You need to go up, you need some recognition, and you begin to cut corners and compromise and trample over people in order to climb the ladder of success, that's dangerous. That's of the wall. And a man that indulges in that could be deceived. And I don't know whether he's saved or not. Now, brethren, it's so good to be saved until I'd like to be the doorkeeper, if God please. It'll be all right. Just let me be the doorkeeper. It's just so good to be saved. I don't have to be the pastor. I don't have to be the the, the number one. You don't have to be the number one. Just let me be the doorkeeper. And I'm not too good to be the doorkeeper. And I'm not too good to pastor that little church up in Kentucky where you've heard he is. And you're not either. You say, well, not me, brother. I'm going to get me a big church and and become famous and great. And no, you won't amount to that much. Forget it. Go and play marbles. You get along just as well. The pride of life's already got you. The devil's already got you through the pride of life. That's of the world. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, the pride of life. That's of the world.
1: That is the world.
0: And my text says, love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man loved the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now I'm not saying you won't be tested, attempted through the lust of the flesh. Nor am I saying that your eye gates sometimes won't give you trouble. My eye gates give me trouble. Nor am I saying that sometimes you'll not be tempted through the pride of life. But I'm saying to you that if you have the grace of God in your soul, God will give you enough grace to say, Now I'm going to do the right thing. I'm going to stay right with God. And you resist the lust of the flesh. You resist the lust of the eye. And you humble yourself to do the will of God. Whether it's popular or you get applauded for it. You humble yourself and do the will of God if you've got God's grace in your soul. Now I want you to look at verse 17. The world passeth away, and the lust thereof. Now I want you to get that. And I don't care who you are, this verse is so about everybody that's ever lived. The world passeth away. Now if you satisfied your body with every lustful thing the devil brought before you, it's not forever, that's for sure. If you satisfied your eyes with every lustful thing the devil brought before you, it's not forever, that's for sure, because the world passeth away. And if you became highly exalted until you became number one in your family circle, church circle, business circle, social circle, if you became number one, it's not for long because the world passeth away. And rich people go to the grave like poor people. And people who lust through their eyes go to the grave like sanctified people. And people who commit lust in their body go to the grave just like preachers and anybody else goes to the grave. The world passeth away. Now brethren, you better better set your affections on something above. Something more steadfast. Something more eternal than the world's able to offer. There's been many a man that sold his soul. Sold out his soul. For the pleasures of this world only become disillusioned and disappointed when the pleasures of the world backfired on him. And he woke up like the wise man of the Bible to exclaim vanity, vanity, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. The world passeth away. Do you get that? And the time will come when the things that you think you want won't satisfy you. When the things you think you want Will not satisfy you. Did you hear that? Right now you may think. The lust of the eye is the thing. The lust of the flesh is the thing. The pride of life is the thing. But the time is coming. When those things will backfire. And you will not satisfy you. The world passeth away. And the lust thereof. Now the last laws. But he that doeth the will of my father. Abideth forever. Now, what is the will of God? It's the will of God that men repent and turn to Jesus. That's right. It's the will of God that men repent and turn to Jesus. And a man that will repent of his sin and turn to Jesus does the will of God. God's not willing that any man perish, but that all men repent. And it's God's will that men repent and turn to God. And if you'll do that, you'll abide forever. You follow the other road... It leads to a dead end and a sinking sand. But if you'll do the will of God, you can abide forever. That means that when your eyes no longer satisfy, you have inward grace that will. When your body no longer satisfies, you have inward grace that will. When the pride of life crumbles like a broken down castle, the grace of God abides. That's the only thing that's eternal and will not pass away in this life. Jesus jesus may we bow our heads in prayer our father don't let us at tabernacle be captured by the world give us enough discernment and wisdom and grace to know that the world the lust of the flesh the lust of the eye and the pride of life is going to pass away that it cannot permanently satisfy though temporarily it may entice and tempt and allure. The time will come when it will not satisfy. Have us to know and know well that only the grace of God is permanent and lasting. And he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. He that liveth and believeth in me, Jesus said, shall never die. Have us to know that in Jesus' name. We thank you for listening to the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast. If this sermon was a blessing to you, please share and invite others to listen and join us next time on the Tabernacle Pulpit Podcast.